1955, Disneyland had just opened in Anaheim, California, when a 10-year-old boy walked in and asked for a job. Labor laws were loose back then, and the boy managed to land a position selling guidebooks for 50 cents apiece. Within a year, he had transitioned to Disney's Magic Shop, where he learned tricks from the older employees. He experimented with jokes and tried out simple routines on visitors. Soon, he discovered what he loved was not performing magic, but performing in general. He set his sights on becoming a comedian. Beginning in his teenage years, he started performing in little clubs around Los Angeles. The crowds were small, and his act was short. He was rarely on stage for more than five minutes. Most of the people in the crowd were too busy drinking or talking with friends to pay attention. One night, he literally delivered his stand-up routine to an empty club. It wasn't glamorous work, but there was no doubt he was getting better. His first routines would last one or two minutes. By high school, his material had expanded to include five-minute act and a few years later, a 10-minute show. At 19, he was performing weekly for 20 minutes at a time. He had read three poems during the show just to make the routine long enough, but his skills continued to progress. He spent another decade experimenting, adjusting, practicing. He took a job as a television writer and gradually he was able to land his own appearance on talk shows. By the mid-1970s, he had worked his way into being a regular guest on The Tonight Show and Saturday Night Live. Finally, after nearly 15 years of work, the young man rose to fame. He toured 60 cities in 63 days, then 72 cities in 80 days, then 85 cities in 90 days, and he had 18,695 people attend one show in Ohio. Another 45,000 tickets were sold for his three-day show in New York catapulted to the top of his genre and became one of the most successful comedians of his time. His name is Steve Martin. That is an excerpt from the book Tiny Changes Remarkable Results Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones by James Clear. And that is on page 229 and, and into 230. So, if you're new to the podcast, um, I would highly suggest going back and listening to episode two and three, um, where I went over the fundamentals, the first law, and then the last podcast, I went over the second law and the third law. In this podcast, I'm going to go over the fourth law, which is make it satisfying, and then wrap it up with advanced tactics, how to go from being merely good to being truly great. Um, so I'm just going to dive right in. I'm going to jump to page 186. And I'm skipping the story um, that he talks about in on like 184 and 183, but I really like where this leads into. So on page 186, he says, Stories like these are evidence of the cardinal rule of behavior change. What is rewarded is repeated. What is punished is avoided. You learn what to do in the future based on what you are rewarded for doing. In the past, positive emotions cultivate habits. Negative emotions destroy them. Jump to page 187. The title is The Mismatch Between Immediate and Delayed Rewards. Imagine you're an animal roaming the plains of Africa, a giraffe or an elephant or a lion. On any given day, most of your decisions have an immediate impact. You are always thinking about what to eat, where to sleep, how to avoid a predator. 
you are constantly focused on the present and very near future. You live in what scientists call an immediate return environment because your actions instantly deliver clear and immediate outcomes. Now switch back to your human self. In modern society, many of the choices you make today will not benefit you immediately. If you do a good job at work, you'll get a paycheck in a few weeks. If you exercise today, perhaps you'll not be overweight in a year. If you save money now, maybe you'll have enough for retirement decades from now. You live in what scientists call a delayed return environment. Now, I like that he talks about this because we do live in a world of immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction. And the the thing that's crazy is the neocortex, and he talks about this in the next paragraph, it, um, the newest part of the brain that is responsible for higher functions like language was roughly the same size 200,000 years ago as it is today. And that he that's a quote from the book, and he, he's talking about us in reference to Homo sapiens sapiens and how th- it's never grown. Um, so flipping to the next, like going, reading the rest of this, he says, it is only recently during the past 500 years or so that society has shifted from predominantly de- delayed return environment compared that to the age of the brain. Modern society is brand new. In the last 100 years, we have seen the rise of the car, the airplane, the television, the personal computer, internet, the smartphone, and Beyonce. He likes to throw in a little uh, humor here and there. So, once you understand how the brain prioritizes rewards, the answers become clear. The consequences of bad habits are delayed, while the rewards are immediate. An example would be, oh, I'm just going to have a few potato chips today. And next thing you know, you blow through a bag. You might not notice the first time you blow through a bag. But you know what? 60, 90, 120 days later of you blowing through a bag of potato chips, maybe not every day, but let's say even if you only eat a bag a week, you will notice the results uh, pretty instantly. I mean, you'll notice the results. Not instantly. It's a contradiction. But um, 189. The brain's tendency to prioritize the present moment means you can't rely on good intentions. When you make a plan to lose weight, to write a book, or learn a language, you are actually making plans for your future self. And when you envision what you want your life to be like, it is easy to see the value in taking actions with long-term benefits. We all want better lives for our future self. However, when the moment the decision arrives, instant gratification usually wins. That's what he's talking about, motivation. I believe this is one of the things that he kind of does is he likes to lead things into the either build on something that he already discussed or build, lead into it. Um, so one way that he likes to use reinforcement and helping with this instant gratification idea, and I actually really like this, I did this, is um, he gives an example on 191. Open a savings account and label it for something you want. Maybe label it leather jacket. Whenever you pass on a purchase, put the same amount of money in the account. Skip your morning latte, transfer $5. Pass another month of Netflix, move 10 over. It's like creating a loyalty program for yourself. The immediate reward of seeing yourself save money toward the leather jacket feels a lot better than being deprived. 
You are making it satisfying to do nothing. And he pretty much just, um, he wraps up that chapter with just saying like, hey, the cardinal rule of behavior change is what is immediate rewarded is, what is immediately rewarded is repeated. What is immediately punished is avoided. And um, I, I do actually really like that chapter. The next one is called, uh, the next chapter he goes into tracking habits. Um, I like what he says, but it's a lot to read, I think. Uh, and he kind of goes back to the formula of habit stacking plus habit tracking. So after I hang up the phone from a sales call, I will move one paper clip over. Um, after I finish eating, after I finish this at the gym, I'll rec record my workout in my journal. And this is just tracking whatever the habit is and seeing, you know, making that instant gratification piece more uh, relevant, making it easier for you to see, oh, hey, I have this jar. Every time I go run, I'll put a paper clip in it. And that way, even if I don't necessarily see my weight loss or my time drop, I'm getting those reps in, which he talks about earlier in the book. Get the reps in. See how often you're doing something. Um, and that's on page... The, the tracking goes on. He has like a couple of benefits. That goes on for a couple of pages. And then we'll... He talks about a habit contract in uh, chapter 17. I'm not really a fan of the habit contract, but if you want to check it out, it's on page 207. Um, I do like the idea of getting a an accountability partner. Um, I personally already use that. I use that when it comes to my cousin, when it comes to running. Uh, it helps me because I'm not just running by myself. I am forcing myself to get up and go at least three times a week. And even if I don't run with him, I'm like, hey, uh, yeah, I tell him when I'm going to run. And even though he doesn't necessarily ask me, well, hey, did you actually run? Um, it's kind of my way of holding myself accountable. So I think I do think that that is actually a good idea and he talks about that on page um, 208, 209. So to wrap up the four laws, I am just going to read Make It Satisfying, which is the fourth law. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me, sorry, the weather has just been crazy up here. I got released early because of uh, flooding. That's how bad it was. But how to create a good habit. Um, so the fourth law is make it satisfying. He says, use reinforcement. Give yourself an immediate reward when you complete your habit. Make doing nothing enjoyable. When avoiding a bad habit, design a way to see the benefits. Use a habit tracker. Keep track of your habit streak and don't break the chain. And number four, never miss twice. When you forget to do a habit, make sure you get back on track immediately. And that last one, I think it's really easy if, you know, I mean, I'm in my late 20s, but we all have those nights where you get drunk, 
you're hungover the next day, you don't want to run. Most people do not want to run. So I think on those days, and then then it's like, well, you haven't run now in three days, and you're like, oh. The thing is, is even if you don't want to run, get up, go on a walk. Maybe you just run half a mile, and if you're supposed to run two miles, maybe just run half a mile and walk the rest of it. But do something, because I think it's better to do anything than to do absolutely nothing. I do like on 213, I'm going to read all of how to break a bad habit, because all of these are the inverse of every law. So the first one is the inversion of the first law. Make it invisible. Reduce exposure. Remove the cues for your bad habits from your environment. Inversion of the second law. Make it unattractive. Reframe your mindset. Highlight the benefits of avoiding your bad habit. The inversion of the third law. Make it difficult. Increase the friction. Increase the number of steps between you and your bad habit. Use a commitment device. Restrict your future choices to the ones that benefit you. That one is the example I gave where I deleted StockX and Adidas because I was buying too many shoes. Um, And then the fourth, the inversion of the fourth law is make it unsatisfying. Get an accountability partner. Ask someone to watch your behavior. And then create a habit contract. Make the cost of your habit public and painful. And you can download a printable version of this habits cheat sheet at atomichabits.com com slash forward slash cheat sheet so the last part of the book that um, to wrap it all up is called advanced tactics how to go from being merely good to being truly great and this starts on page 217 um, and I'm gonna read a, a quick excerpt from this this is um, This is probably one of my favorite parts of this. It's on page 234. But I'm going to start on 233. After my baseball career ended, I was looking for a new sport. I joined a weightlifting team and one day an elite coach visited our gym. He had worked with thousands of athletes during his long career, including a few Olympians. I introduced myself, and we began talking about the progress of improvement. What's the difference between the best athletes and everyone else, I asked. What do the really successful people do that most don't? He mentioned the factors you might expect, genetics, luck, talent. But then he said something I wasn't expecting. At some point, it comes down to who can handle the boredom of training every day, doing the same lifts over and over and over. His answer surprised me because it's a different way of thinking about work work ethic. People talk about getting amped up to work on their goals, whether it's business or sports or art. Your people say things like, it all comes down to passion, or you have to really want it. As a result, many of us get depressed when we lose focus or motivation because we think that successful people have some bottomless reserve of passion. But this coach was saying that really successful people feel the same lack of motivation as everyone else. The difference is that they still find a way to show up despite the feelings of boredom. Jump down a paragraph. The greatest threat to success is not failure, but boredom. 
We get bored with habits because they stop delighting us. The outcome becomes expected. So I really, I, I thought this is crazy because I had never heard anything like that before, but it makes sense, right? Um, why is someone good at free throws? Or dedication. There's no way you can't get bored standing at a free throw line shooting the same shot over and over and over and over. The people that are really good at it, they overcome the boredom. And um, I just thought that getting those reps in, staying motivated, motivation is is, is going to go in and out. And it's not always going to be there. Um, it's not always going to be there. So you got to get those reps in. And I really, I, I have enjoyed a, um, a lot about this book. I plan on implementing some of these things for sure. Um, the habit tracking, the habit stacking. Um, and I will definitely check back in with y'all in a couple of months to let you know how it goes with the savings account and the habit tracking. I'm actually going to track three habits that I am trying to, new habits I'm trying to form. And then I'm going to track one um I guess you could say, you know, like bad habit. And I want to see how it levels out. So to give you a little taste of what the next book is going to be like, I'm now going to read a small excerpt from Flyboys, A True Story of Courage by James Bradley. And I am on page five for those that already have the book. Uh, for those that want to get the book, as usual, I always recommend Amazon uh, Barnes Nobles, or check out your local bookstore. I purchased this from an antique shop that just happened to have books, and um, I just picked it up, and it, it seems really interesting, so I thought I'd share. So, page five. On the same day, my father and his buddies raised that flag on Iwo Jima. Flyboys were held prisoner just 150 miles away at Chichichima. But while everyone knows the famous Iwo Jima photo, no one knew the story of these eight Chichi Jima flyboys. Nobody knew for a reason. For over two generations, the truth about the demise was kept, their demise was kept secret. The U.S. government decided the facts were so horrible that the families were never told. Over the decades, relatives of the airmen wrote letters and even traveled to Washington, D.C. in search of the truth. Well-meaning bureaucrats turned them away with vague cover stories. All those years, I had this nagging feeling these guys wanted their stories told, said Bill. Eight mothers had gone to the graves, not knowing the fates of their lost sons. Sitting at Bill's table, I suddenly realized that now I knew what the Flyboy's mothers had never learned. And next week, I'm going to jump into it. My goal is to do it in uh, sixes, so read through six chapters and then um, after that, it should be right around Christmas time, and I'm going to read um, a Christmas book, and I'll make sure to let you know what that book is ahead of time. But a word from the sponsors. Not really, but um, if you want to support the podcast, uh, feel free to go to orangemain.com and use my code. The Evaluation underscore New Age Book Club. Um, and if you want to get 10% off, it's Wilkins 10. That's uh, Mulk. I use it. Uh, great protein. It's kind of it's kind of becoming my 
snack and or meal replacement. Sometimes it's even dessert. It's pretty good. It's solid. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm lactose intolerant and I've had no problems with it. Um, I also like their Discipline Go. I am pretty much on the Dax Savage right now. Uh, that's Dakota Myers' uh, famous flavor. It's black cherry and vanilla. Also love the mango. Um, and mix it up a little bit. I get the green sniper. I think it's green sour apple. Amazing. Um, you can get this stuff at orangeandmain.com or Jocko Fuel. Um, yeah. And if not, you're always welcome to email me, hit me up, and any donations or book request, you know. Hit me up on the interwebs. I am at E-M underscore T-H-E underscore M underscore the underscore on IG. And uh, yeah, until next time, peace.